good morning to you all. This morning we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And as you know, we are looking right now at the dialogue, or the discourse I should say, of Jesus spoken to an angel, to John, to the churches. And this discourse is specifically for Smyrna. If you all are driving down 265 to where I go, I go to a comic book store that way. But down 265, there's a road called Smyrna Road. I always like driving past that because I think of Smyrna. And I love this passage. And I love what we're going to be talking about this morning. The question I have to you this morning is this. How desperate are you? How desperate are you? Let me read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Smyr in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, may we all be considered faithful unto death, that we might receive the crown of life. May our hearts be in tune to your word and to the Spirit indwelling in us. If there are those who are not believers this morning, Father, I pray that they would be reached with the gospel, touched with the gospel, and that they would come to faith in Christ, that you would regenerate them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And they too might receive the crown of life and not experience the second death, as you put it so eloquently in this book of Revelation. Father, be with us this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I ask you again, how desperate are you really? We, especially in the United States, do not like to admit that we are desperate for something. Now sure, we might be desperate for something trivial to the point that we might exclaim, I'm desperate for or I'm desperate to have. And usually that's followed up with something very trivial. So I might be desperate for a funnel cake, as it was yesterday. Folks, if you had been with us yesterday, specifically me and Toya, you would have thought that we had not eaten in weeks. We were looking everywhere for funnel cakes. In fact, so much that one of the children actually looked at us and said, can you please stop talking about funnel cakes? A 10-year-old looks at grown adults and asks us to stop talking about funnel cakes. We had been talking about them way too much because we were desperate for a funnel cake. But in all seriousness, how desperate really? We don't like to admit real desperation. Now, I want to be very clear here. I did not say depression. I said desperation, all right? Two different things. And the reason that we don't like to admit desperation is because, especially in our context, in our culture, it implies weakness. It just does. 
It often implies poverty or a deficiency in power. And we think that desperation is in the same breath as medication, psychiatry, and possibly even self-harm. And so we avoid dis, dis, desperation at every turn. We don't want to be thought of as desperate. But I ask you, is there room for feelings of desperation in the Christian life where the first solution is not professional treatment? Now, before, we, before I set off on this, I just want to set the stage here real quick. I want to make this statement. All right. Again, we're talking about desperation, not depression. And there is room for medication and treatment in those things. We're not denying that. We're talking about something different this morning. We are talking about spiritual desperation. Is there room for that in the Christian life? Today we're going to look at this discourse to Smyrna. Now I want to tell you just a little bit about Smyrna because we, sometimes we read Scripture and we think that these churches are just kind of like, kind of like the Shire or Rivendell or Mordor. There are these just kind of places in a story that are so detached from us, they, they don't feel real. But this is very real. It was very real what was happening to these churches. And Smyrna, believe it or not, still exists. It's not called Smyrna anymore. Of the seven churches in this, in this uh, book of Revelation, it's the only one that still exists. And today it's called Izmir. We got to remember that these churches, that these discourses were being uh, replied to or were being written to in the course of this apocalyptic text, talking about the future, but also talking about very real present day concerns. And this letter, this discourse right now, is as relevant today as it was to Smyrna back in the first century. We dare not forget that. Now, according to Grant Osborne, who is an evangelical scholar, Smyrna was a beautiful port city that thrived under Roman occupation. It was rich. It was wealthy. It was a tremendous city. It was the first city to construct a temple to the goddess Roma, and it contained other temples as well, and there was a vibrant pagan population. I mean, this city was bumping. It really was, all right? Very active, very affluent. In addition, there was a huge population of Jews, a very large population of Jews. There were synagogues there. But these Jews, specifically, and some of the pagans as well, were not kind to those Christians that were inhabiting the borders there. Around the time that Revelation was written, Jews were excommunicating Christians from their synagogues. Remember, at that time, Christians still went to synagogue as part of their worship. And many were persecuted because they refused to follow the state-mandated emperor worship. So Domitian at this time was mandating that the citizens would worship the emperor, that the emperor was not just a man, that there was some divine aspect to him, and he demanded worship, much like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And so the Jews and many of the pagans would end up persecuting these Christians, and so much so that in 155, the bishop of Smyrna, his name was Polycarp, it's a famous uh, early church father, was burned alive for refusing to proclaim that Caesar was Lord. It's thought that this persecution was in large part due to the Jewish hatred of Christian heretics. So these Jewish individuals would throw these Christians just under the metaphorical bus so that they'd be cruci crucified. The Christians at Smyrna they were desperate. They were desperate for relief. 
Let's get into our text this morning. I know your tribulation. Let's look at what Jesus says in Revelation 2.9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, in this passage, we can see evidence of the persecution of Christians in Smyrna. So we see the evidence of what Grant Osborne told, tells us in his commentary. And Jesus that it says that he knows of the tribulation and of the poverty. He knows of this slander. He is not ignorant to the plight of the Christians at Smyrna. Now, here are just a few thoughts about this verse. All right, so we're just going to leave that verse up there for a little bit. When Jesus calls the Jews a synagogue of Satan, this should remind us of language that we see in Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist and Matthew chapter 12 of Jesus himself when he refers to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. Now, when you hear that language, that seems like an insult, an insult that you might say that, you know, like, man, I'm going to use that sometime. That, that sounds really good. I'm going to call one of my enemies a brood of vipers, right? Maybe a sports team I don't like, something like that. But to the Jews during this day, this would have been uh, paramount to blasphemy. What Jesus and John the Baptist were saying in that phrase was basically saying that they are not just, they are not just evil, but they are children of Satan, and so like that, the synagogue of Satan is basically what, what Jesus is saying here is that these Jews in this synagogue were serving Satan, they weren't serving God. They were not the people of God, they were the people of Satan. Now I want to be clear because this type of language was used, has been used for hundreds of years as anti-Semitic fodder in order to push Jewish individuals back. All right. In fact, language like this, taken out of context, was part. It was uh, used in part for the events of the Holocaust. Jesus is not referring to every Jew in that city as part of the synagogue of Satan. He is referring to those individuals that are throwing Christians under the bus and telling that they're heresy, that they're heretics, and those sort of things. Those that are involved in in persecution. So I want to be clear about that. So both of these statements would have been very insulting, including the synagogue of Satan. In a very real sense, Jesus is calling all these persecuting Jews children of Satan. In other words, how can you persecute other people to this degree and still call yourself people of God? I mean, that's what he's saying. How can you claim to be the people of God, yet persecute these individuals unto death? The activities of the brood were both satanic and beastly. I use that phrase very specifically, and I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that in weeks ahead. The activities were beastly. Number two, Christians, due to the persecution, would have been prevented from participating in normal commerce. So while the, the community was rich and wealthy, Christians would not have been able to participate. They would have had a hard time to get jobs. They wouldn't have been able to buy or sell things. Put quotes around that and remember that. They would not have been able to participate in normal activities because of the mark of being a Christian. Number three, at the same time, while they were poor, impoverished, they were really rich. I mean, this is written in the ESV as a parenthetical statement, but the truth is, is that these Christians, while they were being persecuted and while they were poor, they were rich with treasures laid up in heaven. See, it's a perspective thing, right? 
It's a perspective thing. I, 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 would, I could say this, that there are Christians, bro, your brothers and sisters in Christ, who are living in squalor, in dirt floors across the world, but they are far wealthier than many Christians that are here in the United States. Not because they have bigger bank accounts, but because they have more treasure stored up in heaven. And we need to keep that perspective. And finally, and maybe most importantly, Jesus knows their tribulation. He knows it. Here's what it says here. I know your tribulation and poverty. Jesus is not ignorant. Whatever you are going through right now, Christ knows it. It's not like your suffering and your pain and your troubles are behind this veil that Jesus can't see through. It's not like your pain and suffering is a block of lead and Jesus is Superman but can't with his x-ray vision see through it. That's the nerdiest statement I've ever made in a sermon. But you get the idea, right? Jesus sees everything. He knows your tribulation. I would bet even in a congregation this small right now as we are today, that, th- that some of you are going through something right now in your life that you will not even tell your church family, may not even tell your spouse or your grandchild or something like that. Something's inside you that's just welling up and it's, and it's affecting you, but you don't want to tell anybody. Well, I want you to know this, that while you may not be able to tell anybody, Jesus knows your predicament. Jesus knows and he cares. It matters to him. You may be desperate like the Christians at Smyrna were. There are times where I know that we may feel even subconsciously, but sometimes overtly, that God does not know or He doesn't care about our pain and sufferings. We may feel that God doesn't know our desperation. We feel this way because we can't believe a good God would allow His people to endure suffering if He really knew. How in the world can there be a good and loving God if He is allowing me to go through this? I've tried praying. I have tried praying and it just doesn't work. He doesn't answer me. We've all been in that case where we have prayed fervently for something and he just doesn't seem to answer or care. Maybe there just isn't a God. Maybe the universe is just cruel. Maybe that's what it is. I mean, that's what a lot of people say. We live in a cruel, cruel universe. But that's not true. None of that's true. There is a God. He does know and he does care. And the universe isn't cruel. It's that sin breaks everything. Everything. But you have to remember this. God's timetable for resolving everything is not ours. It's not ours. We live in a culture where we want it now. We want the best job now. We want the best bank account now. We want the best children now. We want the best spouse now. We want all those best things now, and we're rushed to get it. We live in a fast food culture, and it's not just about what we're ingesting. It's about everything. We want it now. And because we don't get it now, as much as we pray, 
we believe that God is either not there or he does not care. And neither one of those are true. It's that we are on his timetable. He is not on ours. His ways just are not our ways. Number two, be faithful unto death. Let's look at Revelation 2.10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, above all of this, about all the stuff that they're already dealing with, Jesus says, do not fear because you're about to get more of it. In fact, it's going to get worse. Now, if I'm receiving this discourse from Christ, I'd be like, seriously, can it get worse? We're in jail. They're lopping off our heads. They're stacking us on these pylons and setting us on fire. Is this really going to get worse? He says, yeah, because that's the tribulation. Jesus tells these Christians, do not fear the suffering that you're about to face. In other words, Jesus sees them, he understands their needs, but the suffering is about to get worse. Now, we're going to get back to this phrase, do not fear, because it comes into play here in a minute. But secondly, Jesus says they are about to be thrown into prison, and this testing and tribulation will last for 10 days. Now, here are a few thoughts. I want you to just hang with me for a minute. Because you might think that that 10 and that word testing doesn't really matter. It's just kind of language, but it matters. Okay? First, like, much like the persecution of Christ in the desert, the tribulation or testing here is a work of Satan. Okay? Satan is the one doing the persecuting. Now, he's using these pawns to do the persecuting, but Jesus wants you to know that this is the devil doing this, okay? He is actively persecuting you all, you Christians, using, all right, these, uh, these means to get it done. And you might be asking, well, why is the Lord allowing him to do that? Why is he allowing to do it? Well, the same reason why he allowed Job to be persecuted, right? How should we think about this? Now, I believe what this refers to is the fact that individuals in the synagogue of Satan as well as other unbelievers are doing the bidding of Satan, likely without knowing it. And here's the truth. Whenever we sin and transgress a holy God, see, here's the thing. You think, well, these are the synagogue of Satan. They're, they must be evil, evil people. But we very quickly try to pull ourselves out of that scenario. This is the truth. When we are sinning and transgressing God, we too are performing satanic activities. And you say, that's really harsh. Is that really what it is? Well, sin is not of God. It is not of God. It is disobedience to God. Who likes to disobey God? Satan. That's why he's Satan. That's why he fell, because he disobeyed. Maybe that will cause us to think a little bit more about sin and think about it differently, that we won't be so cavalier with sin. When we think about, man, we're just doing Satan's bidding. Satan's loving this sinful activity. But two, what about the testing? What does it mean? What does it mean that we're being tested? I believe what it means here is this: is that there is going, there is happening here a separation of the sheep and the goats, a separation of believers and unbelievers. 
that as people, as these individuals are being tossed into prison and being persecuted for these 10 days, and I put quotes around that, that they are being tested, meaning that they are being separated here. That what will be the outcome is that it will be visibly, uh, it will be visible to all around who are the Christians, who are the real believers, and who are not. Who will remain faithful through this time and who will end up casting their lots with the world? Now, again, this is not for God. God's not testing him so he can see because he already knows. He knows who the true believers are and who the, tr- and who the unbelievers are. He knows all of that. Those who endure the suffering while still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ will be revealed to everyone around them as true Christians, and those who recant their faith will not. And at the same time, the faith of true believers, all right, the faith of true believers will be tested. It will be sharpened. It will be molded. It will be strengthened. And we see that when we suffer and we go through trials and tribulations and tough times and we remain true to Christ, it's interesting that we come out on the other side as more faithful, stronger, more committed Christians. You rarely stay in the same place. Either people wane in their faith or they get stronger. Today, folks, it's becoming much easier to recognize true faith to that of the whitewashed tombs that only contain corpses. It's becoming much easier to see who the real Christians are to the unbelievers. And finally, what about these 10 days? Why does he say 10 days? What's, is that a specific number? Like most numbers in Revelation, the 10 is not meant to be taken literal. Okay, It's not meant to be taken literal. That they're only going to be cast in there for 10 days. Okay, it's, it's figurative. And one of the reasons why I say that is because Smyrna is experiencing the tribulation much how we are experiencing tribulation. Now, we're not going to get into the timeline here, if you will, because remember, we don't do timelines. We're not doing time, timelines in this study. But what I'm suggesting to you is the tribulation that the church of Smyrna is experiencing is the same tribulation that we are now experiencing. And you say, well, I'm not experiencing any tribulation. Your brothers and sisters across the globe are. So why the 10 days? Grant Osborne and Tom Schreiner both agree that these 10 days are apocalyptic symbolism for this fact, that the suffering is only temporary. So if he had just said, you're going to be cast in prison and you're going to be persecuted, well, how long, O Lord, right? How long, O Lord, will this last? Well, we don't know exactly how long it lasts. It still exists. Christians have been being, they have been persecuted since the time of Christ. They're still being persecuted today. But it is temporary. It will not last for eternity. It won't be forever. But the suffering is also not insignificant. It's significant suffering. 
And here's the thing, we have trouble like we have trouble kind of figuring that out, like seeing what that was really like, especially here. Because I mean, let, let's be honest, our air conditioning goes out for one hour and we're like crying to Jesus, right? I mean, that's just basically our mode of operation. We really don't know that kind of suffering, all right? So here's the point. The suffering for the Christians at Smyrna was very real. It was very painful, but they knew that it was temporary. And what, and what happens to those who are going to endure that? Well, Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is the reward for going through this? I mean, what am I going to get? We're a consumer-ridden culture. What do I get if I make it through this? You get the crown of life. You get to be with Christ for eternity. And then I ask you, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus worth suffering? Can you stand the pain for the sake of Christ? You may be uncertain about the circumstances of tomorrow or next week, but you do not have to be uncertain about the one who is sovereign over every second of your life. He knows what is going to happen, and he says, patience. This is only going to last a little while, and then you get me, and then you get me. Because I will tell you, and I believe that the saints of Smyrna would say the same, that for the sake of Christ, they would have been willing to give ten, been, in, been willing to endure ten times the suffering that they endured, knowing the reward that they were going to receive. I mean, just imagine if you were to go to John the Baptist, any of these saints from Smyrna, or Pergamum, or Ephesus, or any of these saints back in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the first century who are now in the presence of the Lord, and you got to interview them, right? You got to sit down and just talk with them for, a lot, for an hour, and you got to experience their life. They told you all about their life, and then at the end you say, man, John, was it really worth it? Would you do it all again? Would you do it all again? Ten times ten, I would do it again if it meant that I get to be with Christ. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. Whatever struggles, pain, tribulation, trouble you're going through, it is worth it for the sake of Christ. So choose life. John writes in Revelation 2.11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now the second death means spiritual death. That's what it means. So when we die, the physical body dies here on earth. All right, That's the first death. Now those who are believing in Christ will not experience the second death. We will have life eternal in the presence of Christ. But those who refuse Christ will experience the second death. As scary as the first death is to some of us, folks, we do not want to endure the second death. It is eternal. You don't just 
get like burned up at some point like ash. It's eternal condemnation. But for those who are in Christ, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now that should, for some of you all, resonate. That should bring to mind some of the language that Paul shares with us. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to these words. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? All the things that the Christians at Smyrna were experiencing, all the things that Christians in the tribulation are and will in the future experience. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hint, nothing. Nothing. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's that victorious language there. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor, angels, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that is worth celebrating. That is worth celebrating. If you believe that, you can endure poverty for the rest of your life. I'm not saying you want to. I'm not saying you seek out poverty. But you can endure it for the sake of Christ. You can endure poverty. You can endure pain. You can endure slander and persecution. You can endure famine. You can endure singleness for the rest of your life for the sake of Christ. You can, you can endure being in a dead in job with people who do not like you for the next 80 years, knowing that for all eternity, you get Jesus. That's what that verse is about. It's saying that nothing can separate us. Not even angels, not even demons, not even death. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. If you love Jesus now, death will not separate you from that love for all eternity. That's what that's saying. If you trust Christ now, you could fall off the side of a mountain and go splat. You could, be, you could get blown to bits. And nobody around you will find a single piece of you. But Jesus will still know you, and you will still be in Christ. I do not believe that it's an accident that Paul uses this language, this similar language to Jesus in this passage. When we see words like persecution and tribulation and conqueror in Paul's letters to, in, to the Romans, we're alerted to the fact that in Christ we have all and we will have everything to have victory over all these things. And Jesus promises the Christians in Smyrna that they will face persecution and tribulation, that they, can't, they cannot avoid it, but they can overcome it in Christ. I wish, I wish that the church would stop trying to avoid 
discomfort and pain and trials. I wish the church would stop trying to avoid it and accepting weak Christianity in return. But instead, pour your life into Jesus. Pour your life into Jesus. And just accept the chips where they fall because Christ is worth it. I, I honestly believe that there are individuals, maybe individuals in your life, maybe myself, I don't know that for sure. I, I can't say that 100%. Maybe you all, maybe a family member, maybe a friend. There are some that are probably in our sphere of influence that have sacrificed their love for Christ at times in their life for the sake of comfort. For the sake of keeping a job. It is likely that some of us, maybe in here, I don't know, maybe outside, should have been fired from a job because we were not willing to do something because of Jesus. But we chose to do it because we wanted to keep the job so bad. Because that's what was happening in this time. They refused to go along with the pagan world. And they were either fired or prevented to get jobs. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go to that length? Are we willing to say, I don't, you can fire me. You can take my pension. You can take my health insurance. You can take my security. But I am not doing that. I'm not doing that. Are we willing to do that? Are we, are we that desperate for Christ that we are willing to endure a destitute life knowing that our riches are bound up in heaven? In verse 10, Jesus tells the church, do not fear. Sometimes I wonder if we respond to the words the same way my son does when I tell him not to be afraid. So like around 9 o'clock every night, it's time to get Jackson to go brush his teeth and go to bed. And the hallway's dark, and it's upstairs dark. You know, and this is just kids, right? This is just the way they are, you know. They may not want to go in the next room because it's dark in there, and they're scared. That's just the way kids are, okay? And he says, I mean, he's adamant. I am not going in there unless you come with me. Now, folks, if that monster under the bed or in the closet is real... There is nothing that this 40-year-old overweight dude that can't see without glasses is going to be able to do to save that kid. You know, I tell him, I, I mean, I tell him, we all do and we should, honey, I'm your daddy and I'm not letting anything hurt you. Folks, if a 12-foot monster with claws comes, if a grizzly bear is under his bed, I ain't doing nothing, okay? But we say it, right? Say, I will, I will go to bat for a grizzly bear. We don't tell him you need to run the other direction when I do, okay? But it's just the truth, okay? But we say, do not fear. And he believes us. He believes us. Hook, line, and sinker. If daddy's there, if mommy's there, that grizzly bear's not going to hurt me. Now, I say that in, in sort of in jest, but here's the deal. We want to protect our children and spouses from every pain and every hurt, but the truth is we can't. 
We cannot protect our family from everything. We just can't. But Christ can. That doesn't mean he's going to save you from a grizzly bear, but he can save you from the second death. He can save you from an eternity in in hell. The tribulation that is to come, the tribulation that some have experienced and are still experiencing is exponentially worse than that imaginary monster under the bed. And your parents can't save you. Your pastor can't save you. Folks, listen to me. Your government cannot save you. Okay? Your government cannot save you. No social program, alcohol and drugs, illicit relationships, nothing of this world will save you from the tribulation that is to come. That is here. It can't save you. Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. Pour every hope, everything you have into Christ. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and is to come. And to came to life, I'm sorry. Jesus may not pull you out of prison. He may not save your job. He may not save your marriage. He may not save your financial plight. He may not, be, he may not cure your disease in this life. He can, but he may not. But these pains and sufferings that we are experiencing are testing and preparing us. Will we come out on the other side refined in the name of Christ? How are we going to respond when the tribulation gets worse? Will we whine, gripe, throw a tizzy, looking for the courts and the legislatures to save us? That's our habit, right? We see something that is unjust to Christians. We, what do we do? We gripe, we whine, we, we write our senators. You know, we do that kind of stuff. And the truth is, it's just going to keep happening. Those letters may help for a moment, but it's just going to keep happening. By the way, write your senators, okay? You should, I have. It's all right. But that should not be a substitute for worshiping the Almighty God. Will we give up on prayer when God doesn't answer? I have no doubt that many in the church of Smyrna were in the middle of prayers for deliverance when their heads were separated from their bodies. Can you imagine that? That you walk into the, to the jail cell and all you see is a decapitated body, but they're on their knees in the form of prayer. I have no doubt that many were seeking God's will in prayer as the soldiers came to throw them in jail, separating their spouse from their children. Jesus himself says, the first and the last who died and came to life asked for the cup to pass from him if it was God's will. And still obediently and thankfully, Christ died upon the cross. Maybe we need a little bit more desperation in our lives. Maybe as often as we sing victory in Jesus, we need to sing, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. Maybe that needs to be our new song. Listen to what John Bloom writes as we close. He says, prosperity can cause faith to die a thousand deaths. Suffering has a tendency to drive us to the word out of clutter-clearing desperation for God. Prosperity has a tendency to choke the word and numb our sense of desperation. 
And it's the lack of a sense of desperation for God that is so deadly. If we don't feel our deep need for God, we don't tend to cry out to Him. Love for this present world sets in almost imperceptibly like a spiritual leprosy, damaging spiritual nerve endings so that we don't feel the erosion and decay happening, sometimes until it's too late. Is it possible that in our search for prosperity and happiness and comfort, that we're really avoiding the testing and the suffering and the pain and the desperation that we need to grow in Christ. Is it possible that that's true? Don't give up on God. Don't give up on prayer. Don't lose hope. Because from our perspective, life is long. But God's still at work. Be patient. Give God the time that He has allotted for Himself to do good in your life. And you all know that sometimes you pray for years, for years, for something to happen. And all of a sudden, God steps in. So choose life. In the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Choose life. Choose a life of holy desperation instead of a life of apathetic prosperity. And you will not regret it.